So, Chad, how was your vacation? You were gone a long time. It was very, very interesting. Oh, where'd you go? Well, there's this uh, tour called Readventures Tour that takes you on a journey to follow uh, authors of classical novels. Huh. So they've got one in America called Down the River with Mark Twain. They've got one called Eat, Pray, Love that visits uh, Italy and, and Bali. Okay. And then I took uh, Jonathan Swift's Gulliver Travels Tour. It was fantastic. For 500 bucks, <laughs> and uh, I even brought back some souvenirs. Ah, <laughs> the sailors kept it. And that was a good look for you. Well, we began our journey in the East Indies on a ship called uh, the Antelope. But we ended up coming face-to-face -face with this horrible storm, and the whole ship, the Antelope, sunk. That, that's awful. <laughs> well, true, but I'm a pretty good swimmer, and I made my way to shore. But it was pretty exhausting, so I collapsed on the, uh, on the, the shore, and I, uh, I woke up. And there were like, I don't know. Dozens and dozens of these six-inch people, and they had uh, tied me up with this rope back and forth across the whole thing, and there must have been 40 of them. I tried to get myself loose, and then they pulled out these little tiny bow and arrows, and were like, beer, beer, beer. Little, little people, tiny. Did you hit your head when the boat capsized? No. Why? So, so they put me on this cart, and they start pulling me down, and then I got to meet the emperor. The, the emperor. <laughs> What was he like? Oh, he was fantastic. He was like seven inches tall and very, very entertaining. In fact, what I enjoyed about him is he taught us how they picked leadership in his kingdom. The Lilliputians, they called themselves. And so what they would do is they had like this tightrope walk thing meets uh, like a, a limbo thing to pick out their leadership. Well, at this point, I'm getting really, really hungry. And the problem is, I'm so big compared to them being so small, they're bringing me milk and meat, and I'm still starved. The faster they bring the food, the more hungry I am. So, like this piece of beef jerky, this would be the equivalent of feeding four Lilliputians. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> well, they got this giant war going on. Apparently, it goes back for generations. They were battling with what they called the, the small enders versus the big enders. And they were arguing on which end of the egg do you crack when you're having your morning breakfast. <laughs> well, clearly, that would be the big end. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So the emperor said, we got to tell these people how to eat their egg. So he sent me out with the navy. I get out there, uh, and there's all kinds of ships around there. And so I gather them together, shake them up a little bit, easy peasy. I end up winning the war for him. <laughs> yeah. Mind if I regift this for my grandchildren? <laughs> uh, that's fine. They, they ended up actually finding me a full-size boat that I could use, and so I headed out to sea where I ended up in the land of the giants. Oh, uh, the land of the giants. So, New York, uh, San Francisco. No, Brob Dingnag, of course. Got any souvenirs from there? Well, yes, I actually there was the size of this action figure compared to me. The people were gigantic there. It was amazing. <laughs> I'm having a little trouble believing all this. Me too! 500 bucks! Can you believe it? No, I did have a group on, so that did help. Well, at that point, what they did is they actually sent me to go in and entertain the queen. As you know, I'm not much of a singer, but they did ask for some musical talents. So it turns out there are quite a few songs you can play on your armpit. Well, <laughs> they were thoroughly entertained. Now, they've got some... You know, they're the best thinkers. So I decided to launch into a series of lectures on culture, philosophy, religion, and quite frankly, they got a little bored by it. So I ended up spending a lot of my time fighting giant insects, rats, monkeys, and then uh, 
you know, honestly, the accommodations really weren't that great. It felt a lot like a prison cell, and they kept me in a cage most of the time. So what happened? Well, that's when the eagle came down, grabbed the crate I was in, and ultimately dropped me in the ocean. Oh, okay. Uh, Chad, uh, are you... are you feeling all right? Yeah, I feel great. Yeah, so I end up in the ocean, and at that point, there's some pirates involved, but long story short, short this floating island of Laputa shows up and mm-hmm. saved my life. And you, you feel no ill effects from your travels, no? Uh, signs of concussion, no strange insect bites, uh, maybe a really bad case of jet lag. No. In fact, I saved so much money on this trip, I've actually decided to go on another. Where to? The Land of Oz. Well, I don't know what the last time was that you saw like, Gulliver's Travels or read it. There was a really bad version of it with Jack Black in it several years ago that really lost the whole heart of the story. Because Gulliver's Travels is actually a political satire about how different kingdoms and different governments through time try to rule the world. And Gulliver is actually going from kingdom to kingdom trying to understand their values their way of doing things in their kingdom. And then he's trying to defend the British way of doing things from his kingdom. And the whole story is how a man from one kingdom tries to understand and explain another kingdom to someone else. Have you ever tried to explain one kingdom to another? You may not use that terminology, but I know you've done it. Every time you go to a new job... Or you go to a new working environment, you can feel the kingdom is different. Right? You come to a job and you can tell right away that here in this kingdom, people don't love their work. You know that because it's 4.30 and people are already packing up. And now it's 4.45 and people are going to the bathroom. Because you don't want to go to the bathroom on your time. You want to go to the bathroom on, on the company's time. And then it's like 4.57 and they got all their stuff put away. They're putting on like running shoes and they're ready to go. I mean, this environment here is people don't love what they do. They're just getting a paycheck. And you come into this and you're trying to explain a different way where people love their work and they're passionate about their work. And it's not just a paycheck. There's a way of doing work that is really energizing. You don't just live for the five o'clock. You live for the, the way you're impacting people. That's, that's one kingdom trying to explain to another kingdom a different set of values. Now, if you haven't done that, we've all done this one. If you've dated anyone and been asked to meet their parents... You've experienced another kingdom. If you've ever gotten married, you quickly found out that you came from two different kingdoms. And you find out that one person's kingdom, we get louder and we keep saying what needs to be said until someone listens. And at the end of the family reunion, you're like, in our family, people would like never talk to each other. Oh yeah, we're from New York. That's just how we talk. Well, here we kind of like don't say anything and we triangulate. And if I'm mad at so-and-so, I tell mom and she kind of weasels it in. And that's how we communicate, right? You're trying to explain your kingdom to someone else's kingdom. And sometimes you've worked for a different kingdom. You've worked for a boss. 
You work for a company that was about serving you, serving the employees, high, high ambition, high goals. But there was a sense that this boss would look in the mirror to take responsibility rather than pushing blame off. And when it came time for credit, you had a boss or a company that loved passing out, passing around the credit as a team effort. And you felt the difference between that kingdom and this other type of kingdom. And when Jesus came to earth, he claims to be God. He comes to earth. He says, I've come from a different kingdom. And that kingdom is upside down from your kingdom. And it's not going to be about exalting yourself, trying to rule the world yourself. I already rule the world. I rule the universe. I've come to serve other people. And he says, I'm an upside downian. And as an upside downian, I have come to extend my kingdom, not build my own castle. And I want those who follow me to do the same. Will you be an upside downian who chooses to find your life by losing it? Not to be served, but to serve. It's better to give than to receive. That's upside down. And Jesus invites us like Gulliver to be representatives of one kingdom living in a totally different kingdom with a totally different value. Will you be an upside downian who's obsessed with expanding a different type of kingdom rather than building your own castle? We're going to get three comparisons between Gulliver's Travels and the book of Daniel. And as we do that, I think you're going to find some really fascinating things. So a little background on the story of Daniel before we start comparing to Gulliver's Travels. King Nebuchadnezzar was a king of Babylon. You can read about him in world history. And he expanded the Babylonian Empire in one of its highest reaching times in history. And one of the things he would do is he would come to a city, and he got to a particular city, and he was going to conquer Jerusalem or conquer Judah. So here's what it says in the passage. It says that Nebuchadnezzar besieged, he was the king of Babylon, besieged Jerusalem. And once he got to Jerusalem, what he would do is if anyone came against him, he was ruthless. I mean, he put meat hooks in your back and would drag you behind chariots. His kingdom was about power. It was about proving, making a name for yourself and letting people know who's in charge. But one of his really interesting ways of conquering another kingdom was he would Babylonianize them. He would come to that kingdom, in this case it was Israel, and he would take the cream of the crop, the best leaders, the best politicians, the people with the best ACT scores, and he would pull them out of their kingdom, bring them back to Babylon, where he would teach them the kingdom principles of his kingdom, and they would be Babylonianized. So he's just kidnapped Daniel, who many of you might know from the lion's den. We're not even going to talk about that, but he's that Daniel. His buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or some say Tabedbego. But these four young men, all teenagers, get robbed, ripped from their homeland. They've seen their city destroyed, their family dispersed. But they are the smartest, the best, and that's why Nebuchadnezzar wants them in his kingdom. And Daniel, like Gulliver, is going to be a man from one kingdom, living in another kingdom, trying to explain why his values are upside down, to the kingdom of Babylon. He's going to be so sought after as a prime minister eventually, he will serve the king of Babylon, the second king of Babylon. He'll be taken over by the Persians and the Persians will keep him on, the prime minister of another administration because of how smart and sharp he is even though he's upside down. So let's look at these three kingdoms together and see what we can learn. Three kingdoms of Gulliver's travels and how they relate to the book of Daniel. The first, Laputa. 
Laputa was a sky kingdom that floated, if you remember the book. And it was always about exalting itself. The people there were about titles, making a name for themselves. It was all about education. In fact, you were so obsessed in Laputa about exalting yourself, you often forgot about your surroundings and people around you. Jonathan Swift writes, One day I saw something very strange in the sky. It was afternoon and the sun was very hot. Suddenly the sky became dark and I could not see the sun at all. I looked up and saw a huge object in the sky. It seemed to be an island, and it was flying. I looked at it through my telescope, and I saw people on the island. I was very surprised to see a flying island with people on it, and I did not know what to do. It seems the minds of these people are so taken up with intense speculations that they neither can speak nor attend to the discourse of other people without being roused by some external action or traction. So they hired these people called flappers, who would throw pebbles at them so that they wouldn't be so caught up with their thoughts they could see the people around them. It's a lot like texting today, actually, if you think about it. So they hire these flappers, are employed diligently to attend to his master in all of his walks. And upon occasion, to give him a soft flap on his eyes because he's always so wrapped up in cognition. And he is in manifest danger of falling off the island and bouncing his head against every post and in the streets of jostling others, or just jostling himself into the kennel. So here in Laputa, all the values are about exalting yourself. And Daniel comes into a kingdom that is all about self-exaltation, it's about making a name for yourself, you don't even see the people around you, they're just stepping stones to get where you want. And in a kingdom that's about exalting itself, Daniel is going to have an upside-down way of thinking about the needs of others. Now history records that, just as the Bible says, Nebuchadnezzar conquered Babylon. And it seems like Nebuchadnezzar made a name for himself and conquered Babylon. But the Bible records that God brought Daniel to Babylon. God brought him. What do you mean God brought him? God brought him there, and he begets apprenticed amongst the wise men to become the next dream interpreter, the next wise man, the person the king would seek for counsel. So he's being trained, but he's got a very different value system. He eats different things. He's Jewish. He eats kosher food, not Babylonian food. He's there not to promote himself, but the God of, of his book tells him that he should serve others. But God gave him a very unique ability. Not only was he smart, 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 in all the in literature and, and military and thinking and leadership. But God also gave him a supernatural ability to interpret dreams. Well, he's still in the apprentice program. And one day, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And he has this dream and he is terrified. He wakes up. Oh my goodness, I had a dream last night. I'm, I'm sweating. I can't remember the dream, but it, it terrified me. Men, men, wise men, everyone. Tell me what my dream was, and then tell me what it meant. King, if you tell us what the dream is, maybe we can interpret it. But no one alive could tell you what it means. What good's having wise men and employing them? If you can't answer my questions, kill them all, he says. Well, the word gets to Daniel, who's in the apprentice program, that all of the people, his enemies who kidnapped him from his homeland are about to be killed. I'd be like, ha, 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 serves you right. Not Daniel. He's an upside-down Daniel. Daniel asked to see the king. 
He comes before the king and he says, O king, please don't kill your wise men, of whom I'm apprenticed to. And here we see him caring for his enemies. He's worried about and concerned about the people who kidnapped him. Upside down. In a kingdom that's all been about stepping on each other and whoever you need to push down to get to the top, Daniel is thinking and serving and and helping the people who've stepped all over him. He then turns to the king and says, and by the way, king, no one you'll ever hire can tell you the dream you had or what it means. This is the guy who puts meat hooks in you and drags you by a chair. You don't tell him he's not going to get what he wants. The king is just about to get angry and Daniel says, but... And by the way, I can't do it. It doesn't even take credit. This is like, this is the moment to take credit. He says, but I do serve a God who can interpret dreams. And I'm going to pray, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had been praying with him that he would get this interpretation. And God revealed to Daniel the dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had. And look what it says. The secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone else. He doesn't take credit. He spreads the credit back to God. That's what this guy's all about. We'll talk about the dream in just a second. What's so striking, here's a guy who's thinking of other people, not exalting himself, and he's not taking credit for himself in a kingdom that's all about taking credit for yourself. A little more historical background before we keep moving. When, when, when King Nebuchadnezzar came to power, archaeologists have found uh, inscriptions of what he did. Right before he started expanding Babylon, he had a prayer to his god Marduk. And so he prays before Marduk, right before he begins to expand the empire, and he says something like this. Oh, mighty Marduk, I want to expand my kingdom like you've expanded yours so that all the kingdoms of the world will give tribute to me. And his ethic was based on his god. If you do a little research on the god Marduk, the Babylonian god Marduk, just like the Greek gods or the Roman gods, there was a struggle between all the gods. Who's going to be the top god? Here's what Marduk looks like. Marduk was called the sky god because he defeated all the other gods through mighty battle by crushing and destroying others so that he could exalt himself to be the sky god. So Nebuchadnezzar is following the same ethic of his god, which is step on whoever you need that everyone will bow down and bring tribute to you. And that's why this Daniel is so weird to him. He cares about other people. He's not about exalting himself. And the application in this first kingdom to you and I is when you have a conversation. Are you always the hero in the story? When you walk into a room, are you always thinking about what people are thinking of you and trying to make yourself look better or serve a higher purpose? If you remember the book Good to Great, one of the reoccurring themes of Good to Great is they studied companies. They found the companies that were the most ambitious and the most successful were led by a level five leader. And level five leaders were people who were smart, efficient, diligent, ambitious, and deeply, deeply humble. They weren't about exalting themselves, but serving the greater good. Because of that, they were open to feedback from people around them. Because of them, they created better morale in their companies. So research has found what the Bible's been challenging us for years to do, which is will we be incredibly ambitious and incredibly humble? Will you be an upside downian? In a kingdom that exalts itself, will you choose to exalt others?
The second kingdom is a kingdom of Lilliput, a kingdom that loved things and used people. If you remember from the book, this is the first kingdom he comes to. He wakes up and he finds out after this long uh, boat ride that he uh, is in a kingdom that he's very, very large. We rode, and in about half an hour, the boat was overset by a sudden flurry from the north. What became of my companions in the boat, as well as those who escaped on the rock or were left in the vessel, I cannot tell. But I conclude that they were all lost. For my own part, I swam, as fortune directed me. And I was pushed forward by wind and tide. I lay down on the grass, which was very short and soft, where I slept sounder than I've ever remembered to have done in my life. I reckoned it was about nine hours. For when I waked, it was just daylight. I attempted to rise, but was not able to stir. For as it happened to lie on my back, I found my arms and legs were strongly fastened on each side to the ground. My hair, which was long and thick, tied to the same manner. In the meantime, the the emperor held frequent counsels about me to debate the course should be taken with me. And they decided to call me the Man Mountain. The man mountain. And they saw him as a tool, not as a person, but as a thing. There's been a battle between the little enders and the big enders over generations. A grandpa of somebody and a grandpa of somebody else couldn't agree for breakfast whether you crack the egg on the big end or the little end. So they've been at war for two centuries because of the big enders and the little enders. And when uh, Gulliver comes to shore, they see him as a possible tool to win the war effort. So this whole kingdom wanted to see him not as a man, but as the man mountain who would be a military strategist. Daniel is the kind of person in his kingdom that brings a whole new mindset. He doesn't love things and use people. He uses things and loves people. And there is a man mountain in the middle of Daniel's story. He gets back to the dream. What was his dream he had? Well, he says, well, O king, you had a dream last night that God's revealed to me, and the dream was a giant statue of yourself. And the statue of yourself had a gold head. It had uh, hands, shoulders made of silver. It then had another section of thighs and another section. That was your dream. And and that mighty kingdom represented by that statue, suddenly a, a, a rock came from heaven. And it was a rock not even made by human hands. It was a a man, but also a rock. And it came from the heavens. It smashes into the statue. The whole thing gets knocked over. And that little bitty rock from heaven begins to turn into a mountain. And that mountain overcomes and takes over the world. And the king's like, that is the dream I had. And it terrified me. Because I was that statue. The statue was me. But what does it mean? You're thinking, yeah, what does this mean? What did he eat last night? And Daniel, with very specific detail, mentioning the countries by name, at least three of them, he says, here's what the dream represents. The head is you, O king of Babylon. God wants you to know what's happening. God wants you to know that a kingdom has come from another place and it is going to overcome the kingdoms of this world. The, the, the gold head is Babylon. But you will one day be conquered by a nation of Persia. 
That's the silver one. And it, as history records, was not just one. It was the Medes and the Persians, thus the two arms. It will not be as strong as your kingdom, but it will then be conquered. And it mentions by name the country of Greece. Greece will come and will then conquer Persia. Now, this was laughable when Daniel was written. That would be like me saying today that 100 years from now, the country of Chad is going to be a world power. Like country of Chad in Africa? Greece was unthinkably, not even on the, on the radar. He said, and then another nation will come and defeat that nation, Rome. And it's during the time of the Romans that something will come from heaven to earth, a, a, a man mountain during that time, and it will crush all the kingdoms of this world and turn into a mountain that expands and is unstoppable. One more little background. So the book of Daniel was written in 600 B.C. On a timeline. Now, it's over several years because he serves in many administrations. The Persians are going to defeat the Babylonians in 539. So you might be able to say, hey, there's no supernatural stuff here. Don't give too much stock to this because he already knew about the Persians. He just edited back in the book. But we have actual archaeological evidence of manuscripts of Daniel way before the Greeks. That mentioned Greece by name. Alexander the Greece does show up in 356 BC and conquers the known world. And sure enough, just as the Bible predicted, his kingdom was destroyed, divided into four parts, and conquered by the Romans. And during the time of the Romans, a man from heaven comes to earth, sets up a new type of kingdom that expands into every culture and every place in a totally different way that's been unstoppable for 2,000 years. One of the reasons I believe in the Bible is not because I'm a pastor, not because I grew up as a Christian, because of fulfilled and predicted prophecy. Just like here. Now, outside the Bible, there's a, a historian by the name of Josephus. And Josephus records that when Alexander the Great came to Jerusalem, he comes to Jerusalem and he's going to besiege and destroy Jerusalem to set up his Greek Hellenism and, and his gymnasiums and, and his theaters. And he's always going to destroy the temples of, of the foreign gods to set up the gods to Zeus and others. He's about to destroy the, the Jewish temple and one of the priests comes running out. Josephus records that the priest hands Alexander the Great a copy of the book of Daniel. Alexander opens the book of Daniel and the scribe says, Our great God, hundreds of years ago, predicted that you would one day conquer the world. Alexander the Great reads the scroll of Daniel and is so in awe that they serve a God that would mention his country by name hundreds of years before he was a superpower, Alexander the Great did not destroy the temple of Jerusalem like he did in many other places. That's when I, when I mention the Bible being true, not just because the Bible says it's true, there's archaeological, historical facts that the Bible claims that are fulfilled to the detail, and Daniel is certainly one of them. And it predicts that there would be a man mountain that would come from earth in the time of the Romans, just as Jesus did, and he would set up a kingdom that would begin, start very small, and it would begin to expand. It would be a bigger kingdom than ever existed before with a totally different set of values, what's known as the church. And that this kingdom, unlike the Lilliputians who, or even the Babylonians who used people and love things, this new kingdom Jesus represented would be upside down. And he invited people to be upside downians 
who would love people, love them, not use them, serve them, care for them, have compassion for them, the people you like and even the people you don't like. Because the man mountain who came from heaven to earth served his enemies, died for his enemies, said, Father, forgive them to his enemies. How about you? What kingdom are you serve? Is it more like Babylon? Or is it more like this upside down kingdom? Talked to somebody this week who said, Chad, he's got a really bad diagnosis medically. And we're facing the fear and we're facing anxiety. But we are trusting God that he's in control. And we're going to continue to live life. And we're going to continue to experience life. Because we know that this is a surprise to us but not a surprise to God. And I thought that's exactly what Daniel had. Doesn't mean you like the unknown. Doesn't mean you like these kind of diagnoses. But Daniel was able to in the middle of huge administrative shifts in history. To have this calm about him. How? He knew that God had already set up the meta-narrative. The the major storyline, history's been going someplace. And God is directing history in such a way that he could not sweat the small stuff. Like the small stuff, Babylon just got conquered by Persia. Yes. I can trust that there's a God who's a a, a meta-narrative and a plot line for my life because I've seen what he's told me in advance. And God wants that kind of peace for you and I. That we can so know that he's in control of life that even as we face the unknown, whether it's a diagnosis or a relationship breakdown, we like Daniel can be an upside down in who understands that. We really love people. Somebody sent me an obituary of a man who died about a month ago. And here's how he was described. He died at 90. You try to pattern yourself after a guy like this, but you always fall short. Conway went on to build TGI Friday's restaurant change across greater Cincinnati and into other markets. He always cared about the people more than he did about the business. Another man, he was always a gentleman and a scholar, a humble man, as fine as he could be. Bob approached people with a tender heart. He saw what they were, not what they looked like. And this was the most profound. Conway carried a management roster with the names of every worker's children. The fact that we have so many people in this company for 25 to 30 years said everything about him. It was a family. Here was somebody who didn't just see each employee as a cog in the wheel. He wanted to ask about your family. Remember your kids' names. This was an upside down Ian who did great things for our city, great things for the world, great things with his life. But as people got around him, they said, this is a different type of kingdom. This is a different type of person. Our third kingdom, the last one is Brahm Dingnag. Brahm Dingnag is a kingdom that thought it owned the place. Everybody was big in Brahm Dingnag, and now Gulliver is very, very small. And in a kingdom where everybody thinks they own the place... Will we be willing to know our place? The queen became so fond of my company that she would not dine without me. I had a table placed upon the same at her majesty's spot where she ate. I was, I was just at her left elbow, and I had a little chair to sit on. I should have lived happily enough in that country. I should have lived happily enough in that country. 
I got fame. I got the voice of the queen. But my littleness had not exposed me to several... Sorry, I would have lived happily in that country if my littleness had not exposed me to several ridiculous and troublesome accidents. His new value system of being small has the court jester tries to eat him because the court jester was this dwarf who no longer was the smallest person in town. His smallness became a problem because in this kingdom that was all about we own the place, I'm in charge, he didn't know his place. And his smallness, his value system interrupted this kingdom. And Daniel's the same way. The reason he's thrown in the lion's den is because he serves people and he prays to his God. So people go after him. People are trying to step on him because he keeps going up the ladder by serving people and they keep going down the ladder by trying to exalt themselves. And Nebuchadnezzar has a son. And this son comes face to face with Bromdingnag. In the sense that this kingdom is all about, I own the place. My dad defeated everybody, and now I'm next in charge. I'm Belshazzar. My dad beat everybody, and I'm now going to show everybody how powerful I am. So Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's son, throws a party, and it's like a drunken orgy. And, And as he throws the party, he goes and grabs the silver and gold holy sacred elements from the Jewish temple that his dad stole a generation ago. And he uses the sacred silverware from the God of heaven, the Bible's temple. And he uses them to throw his drunken orgy in Babylon. And as they're yucking it up, having a great old time, in the middle of the party, everybody gasps. (gasps) As a gigantic hand appears in midair, goes against the wall, and this gigantic godlike hand writes, mean, mean, <coughs> tackle a parson. <coughs> Pardon me. No, he's that voice again. The king is terrified. Now, maybe again you're like, Chad, you just tried to convince me from archaeology the Bible's true, and then you tell me a story about the big old hand. You can't have both. Well, let me again try and propose rationally and philosophically. If there is such thing as a God, God should be all-powerful, right? That's rational. If there's a God, he should be all-powerful. If God is all-powerful, then he should be supernatural, be able to do beyond just the natural. So the idea that a supernatural God could do a supernatural thing is not irrational. It's actually rational. Wouldn't it be a worse story to say, here's a story, a book that gives the account of a supernatural God, and he doesn't do anything miraculous? Now, you don't have to necessarily believe it, but it's very rational to think that a supernatural God could do something supernatural. So whether you believe that or not, let me continue the story. This gigantic hand writes, mean, mean, tekelaparzin, and Belshazzar is terrified. What does this mean? Can any of my wise men tell me? No. But one of the wise men says, hey, there's a guy we put in the closet. He's in his 60s, 70s. It might even be his 80s by now, named Daniel. Why don't we call him out? Clearly, Belshazzar hasn't seen him, so he calls him out. So Daniel comes in, he says, are you Daniel that used to talk to my dad? Yeah. Do you know what that means? And if you tell me what that means, I'm going to give you gold and silver, you'll be third in power in the whole kingdom, you get robes, you get it all. And Daniel, again, upside down again, he says, king, why don't you go ahead and keep your robe, and keep your power, and keep your money, and keep your titles. 
in a kingdom that's all about power and money and titles, he just turned it all down. How could he do that? Well, one reason is, you know, the guy's not going to have the kingdom for very long because of that dream. And that is also what helps you as a follower of Jesus not get, you can like stuff but not be obsessed with stuff because you know stuff is ultimately temporary. It really gives you a healthy relationship with stuff. He knows his place, Daniel does. And his place is not defined by his titles. He says, keep your stuff, and I'll tell you what that dream means. He said, your dad got some supernatural visions about what was going to happen. Your dad got some warnings about becoming proud and arrogant, and you have not followed it, though you knew what God told your dad. Worse than that, you decide to serve the gods of silver and gold, and you took sacred elements because you think gold and silver and titles and exalting yourself is more important, and you turned God's sacred things into a big orgy. And God has weighed your life. Mean, mean means God has weighed your life, and you have come up wanting. Now, are you going to tell the king of the world, hey, just so you know, you've dedicated your life to the wrong values and the wrong things? Are you going to say that? I'm going to be like, uh, you know, let's do a survey, a 360, uh, a blind survey with survey monkey. I mean, this guy's got such courage. How can he have such courage? He's not mean about it, but he says that's what it means. It means you've been weighed. The God of heaven has weighed your kingdom. You've come up wanting, and he's going to divide your kingdom. And it's going to be divided tonight. The king has never had anyone. The problem problem is you go up an org chart, you less and less have good feedback. People tell you the truth. He's never had somebody who's like, oh, he still gives him the robe. He still gives him the title. He still gives him the money. Now, again, a little piece of history. The Babylonian Empire under Belshazzar did not think they were even conquerable. They had built... uh, uh, a battle wall that was, it had food inside for over a year. It might have even been three years worth of food in there. They had a river that ran directly underneath the walls. And so, coming underneath the walls, there was a river, and it's like two inches between like where the water was and the concrete barrier. So the constant flow for dumping sewage, for getting water that they wanted for drink, they felt like they were unconquerable because of it. And so they thought, even if somebody tried to conquer us, it would take years. However, 14, 20 years ago, this night, the Persians have been trying to conquer the Babylonians. And they come up with an ingenious plan, historians tell us. They decide that the best way to conquer Babylon is to redistribute the river. So for 20 years, they have been digging another version of the river. So where the river is going into Babylon, they are diverting the river to go around Babylon. Now, it's subtle. The water has gone from two inches between the top of the concrete, or the stonework, and the water, to after a couple years it goes down, it's about three inches, six inches. But after 20 years, there's now about a foot. And the Babylonians haven't noticed, because they're inconquerable, and they're invincible, and they're the Babylonians. But in one night, the Persians sneak under the wall. They take their entire army, get into the river, And they walk their way up to the Babylonian walls. And now with enough room between the river they diverted, between the top and the bottom, they march their whole army underneath Babylon and come from the inside out and destroy it and conquer it in one night. Just as Daniel foretold.
And one of the things that helps you as a follower of Jesus and a follower of the Bible is you don't get caught up in stuff that's temporary. Even 70 years temporary, even 100 years temporary. You love it, you like it, you enjoy it, but you don't live for it or be defined by it. And you have a sense that one day you're going to stand before God and you're going to be held account for how you've lived your life. Has it been about exalting yourself or exalting others? Loving things or loving people? Owning the place or knowing your place? And Daniel knew his place. And it gave him peace and confidence to be brave and courageous. And that's why there's this unique thing with God that you're able to be honest about your struggles and yet at the same time have confidence in God. I mean, I've got that going on right now. As I mentioned, Beth um, has had these back issues going back since November. And, and you know, we've got the usual chaos with autism going on. And then uh, Beth can't do a lot, so I'm sort of doing double, triple duty with that stuff. And good news, hey, we're going to have surgery about two weeks ago, and that's going to solve everything. And it went well, and we found out what we needed. And, and then but one out of a thousand, sometimes your degenerate back is so bad that it doesn't take. And two days after her surgery, I, we think it didn't take. And the pains all come back. So now I got a mattress laying down in the middle of the living room, the best sleeping, you know, laying on during the day, and I'm trying to cover all the different things that are being covered. And I hate these circumstances. I'm not happy with these circumstances. My son Javen graduated from college last uh, week, and so Beth couldn't go to the graduation, so she's watching on her phone on the on the live feed, and so we're all there. Grandma, grandpa, 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 we're cheering, and the, the guy says, hey, youngest graduate uh, with an undergraduate degree this year was 18 years old, and Javen jumps up and cheers, and we cheer uh, for him. And he walks across stage, you know, the three seconds, he's on the, the big Tron, which is sent to, to uh, the live feed. And so he walks off stage, and then I call my wife to share this moment call her up. As soon as I call, she immediately hangs up on me. That was weird. She calls back about three minutes later. What's going on? I am really mad at you. Why? You called. She's on Percocet, you know. Been watching for two hours because they don't have a really clear line of who goes when. Two hours she's been watching the feed. There was about a five minute delay. I called during the two seconds that Javen was on the stinking screen. And I am sitting there in the stands at Nippert Stadium like, God, you have got to be kidding. Can you throw me a freaking bone? (laughs) Juggling typical autism, juggling my wife being relatively incapacitated, juggling trying to celebrate with my son. My daughter graduates this weekend, so I'm having to take go there myself and get her stuff and move it back. I'm like, God, this is so unfair. This is so unhelpful. And I'm angry at God for what he's not doing. And at the same time, I'm like, God, I know you know best. It just doesn't feel like it. And one of the unique things about the grace of God is that usually you have two choices. Give up on God, forget it if he's not going to do what I want, or I'm angry at God. But the grace of God allows you to uniquely be angry at God and honest with your anger, at the same time say, but you're, more, you're my God. I still trust you. I don't understand you. I don't like it, but I trust you. And that's where I was that day. That's where I've been for a few weeks. I understand God has a plot line. I just can't see it yet. 
So here's the question for each of us as we think about these kingdoms. Will I be humble enough, big enough, and small enough to serve as an upside downian? Am I humble enough to serve others? Am I big enough to love people and use things in a kingdom that does the opposite? Am I small enough to know my part? And even when I'm angry or frustrated to say, but I do know a God who's got a major plot line that I'm going to trust when I don't see the details. Because God is looking for upside downians, People who are humble and kind in a world that is self-exalting and cruel. People who will be courageous and tell the truth when they're tempted to give in and weasel out and wimp out. And the reason we can be humble and kind is because we know the man mountain, the man who came from another kingdom, came to live in this kingdom, start a kingdom that's been expanding for generations. It's a kingdom that's overcoming all of the kingdoms, expands in Africa, expands in India, expands in China and, and, and Russia and, and Europe and America. This kingdom has crossed all cultural lines, all geographic lines. It just keeps growing, this kingdom of Jesus, just as Daniel predicted. And that kingdom began to grow. The ultimate man who deserved to be served said, I came to serve and to bring about an army of upside-downians who want to love others the way I've loved them. Let's listen together. Imagine a world with dads and moms, husbands and wives, leaders in the community, coaches, bosses, employees who live like upside-downians. Even if you don't believe in the Bible or Jesus, or Daniel's crazy dream. Wouldn't life be better if people lived in an upside-down kingdom in this world? Instead of getting cynical and giving up on it, let's ask God to develop that in us. I want to pray before we close, but I want to mention one more thing. Mother's Day next week. So we go to Mother's Day. We think we're going to have record attendance. So if you typically come to one or two services, they're all the same. Ken Kington's with us, a comedian, just has done a great job for us. I encourage you only to come to one service for those who double dip, or at least sit out in the, in, the, in the back area so we have room for our guests, like this last song talked about. And if you can, those who call Horizon Home, prioritize taking your family to our 4.30 service on Saturday, or even our 8.50 service so we can create space for friends that are coming. I encourage you to do that so we can be people who are humble and kind and make room for our guests. Let's pray together. God, make us a community. Make us people who love people, who serve people, who are so confident in who you are and the plan you have for history and the plan you have for our lives that we can walk through life not focused on new titles but about serving other people with towels, washing their feet, serving them, making them better. May we exalt others the way you exalted us. And all this, Father, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thanks for being here for Plotline. It is over, I'm sorry to say. And so next week we start a brand new series after Mother's Day called Training Manual. Thanks for being here today.